Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 25. This episode is sponsored by DeGreiter and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, DeGreiter's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Hi, my name is Pania Newell. I'm an assistant professor in mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering. As we're recording this episode, which is sometime late January, we're entering into the season of hiring and season of faculty search and applications are due. We thought we should designate this episode on talking about recommendation letters. Sometimes we also call them reference letters. These recommendation letters or reference letters are a critical piece of the package when academic job seekers are hoping to land a faculty position at an institution. They are equally important when it comes to tenure and promotions. In this episode, we'll be talking about what you should expect from your letter writers and what some of the important information that search committees or promotion tenure committees are looking for. Since the letters and expectations for entry academic position and tenure promotions are quite different, we'll split this conversation into two parts. For the first part, we'll be talking about these letters when you apply for a faculty position as an assistant professor. Then we'll talk about these letters for tenure and promotions. So let's first talk about these recommendation letters or reference letters when you first apply an academic position. Kim and I have been quite remote from this period of time, many years, I guess, like 16, 17 years. So maybe I will ask Pania to address some of these questions as she is on several search committees. So let's start, talk about how many letters does a typical faculty applications require? Thank you, Lucy. Most of the searches that I've been involved and also when I applied for the position a couple of years ago, the requirement were three letters. When do these reference letters are actually submitted? Are you including these letters together with the package or you will be asked about them once you pass certain rounds, like the first round of interview or when you're actually about to be made an offer. So actually, to my knowledge, I think each school, they have different standards that they follow. Some, they require all the references to be submitted at the time of the applications. Some, they understand that those letter writers, they are really, really busy and they know if they got 250 applications for a position, they don't ask for all those recommendation letters or reference letters to be submitted at the time of the submission. 
patients, when they go through the very first rounds of the evaluations and when they identify, I don't know, 10 to 15 candidates that they are there at the top of their list, then they request the candidate to reach out to their references and ask them to submit the reference letters. So to my knowledge, there are both ways that they are happening in the U.S. academic systems. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think if they are asked too early ahead of time, it creates too much burden for these letter writers. So now comes to a more heavier question. I think that's kind of hard to answer. Usually, whom should you ask for these letters? Well, I guess that's a million dollar question (laughs) because as you mentioned, there is a heavy weight on the letters when it comes to decide who we should send an offer to. My personal opinion, and this is just, again, very personal, I think that you should ask somebody who knows you really, really well technically, and they know what you've done in your field, and they can talk about your technical contribution, your leadership, and how you can add value to the institute that you are applying to. And also, you should know that they are writing you a strong letter. So by just knowing you, it's not enough. Knowing that they are writing a very strong, positive letter. Also, you should know that they are very responsible people that they would submit these letters on time because that's your responsibility to make sure that all those three letters they are submitted within the whatever required time that it's been asked to be submitted so and also they should be some senior or very well established researchers in your field so when they talk about you and your technical contribution to the field they themselves are among those well-known researchers in the field so their letter has additional weight some junior researchers just got their phd they typically go to their advisor and they ask for their advisor but if you are far away from your advisor or you've done multiple postdoc positions so maybe you can go to your mentors during your postdoc i think that it varies from person to person when you ask for the letter always Put that word, can you please give me a strong letter? Don't ask that, oh, can you give me a letter of recommendation? Make sure that they can give you a strong letter. That's great. Thank you, Panya. Kim, you're at administrative position. You probably have seen a lot of these applications for faculty positions. Anything that you want to add on top of what Panya had said? No, I think Panya highlighted everything. Maybe there's just one thing she didn't explicitly say, but it was implied. If you're in an area where you did do a postdoc, I think having your postdoc advisor write a strong letter of recommendation is very good because recall, it's a different step from being a graduate student. In the graduate student role, you're following the direction of your advisor And you don't have as much leadership in terms of guiding the project along. But when you're in a postdoc, you're expected to guide the research, to mentor other people. So you have a different level of value when it comes to your postdoc advisor. So they can evaluate you on whether you would really be a strong tenured faculty member because they can see the leadership skills and the potential that you would offer if you became a faculty member. That's great. 
That's great. Yes. Addressing their potential at this stage is a critical component in these letters because the potential hires, the university or the departments will be looking at their potentials. All right, that's great. So let's move on to the second portion where we talk about the reference letters for tenure and promotions. So reference letters for faculty going up for tenure or promotion are sometimes referred to as tenure review letters or promotion letters. Typically they're asked to be somewhere between five to 10 letters. Usually these letters are coming from more prominent senior scholars in your field. Some universities also require a few letters from inside the institution. So those are called internal letters. And some universities also require some students' letters. So those are called students' letters. But here, I think we'll just focus on the external letters because in my point of view and in my own experience, these external letters are way more significant than the other two. Uh, not that the other two are not important, but external letters needs a lot of strategy to put them together into your package. So Kim, I think maybe you're at the best position to answer some of these questions. So in terms of external letters, in my point of view, who, where, and what should be considered in that order? Whom you should be asking for these letters? Where are these people from and what can they offer? What is the special component that they can offer to support your case? So who should write letters? I'll tackle that one first very briefly. The people who write you letters should be people who are tenured faculty members, preferably those who are full professors. They should come from comparable peer institutions. So if you're at a research one institution, then that full professor should be also at either a peer institution or a research one school, if that's where you are, or research two school or a master's level school, et cetera, or a teaching university. They should be people who are in your field. They're well-known in your field. You know, that's a whole different conversation of how you get to know those people so they can write a strong letter for you. But the people should be well known in your field. What they should be saying in the letter, ideally, is that you are a well established scholar in your field. You have made a significant contribution since you've been hired as a tenure track faculty member. They should also compare your level of productivity, teaching, service, and research to junior faculty that are at their own school. They should also compare you to those junior faculty members who have recently received tenure. So in other words, if you were at their university, would you also be promoted to tenure, to, be, to have a tenured position? So for me, those are the key things you should definitely be looking for. Faculty members who are at peer institutions and making sure that they're the leaders in their field that can really talk about the details of what contributions you've made. So do you have to know these people? Ideally, be able to evaluate your scholarship without 
having met you, right? Because it's your scholarship and your contribution that should speak for itself. None of us have never met Einstein, <laughs> but if we were asked to write a letter of recommendation, we will be able to say great things without having lunch with him or meeting him at a conference. So ideally your scholarship should speak for itself. Does it help to have known that person in passing or met them at a conference? Absolutely, because they're at that point, then they begin to evaluate your thought process, how you're tackling the problem, right? A different perspective that maybe they didn't see before that you're bringing to this field and they will be able to elaborate on that. So of course, I think it's always great if the person knows you, but I think if you really have solid foundation in your scholarship, it's not mandatory that the person knows you. Mm, I see. So before the letter writers actually write that letter, I'm assuming they will get a copy of the entire package rather than just a CV. Yep. Yep. You're absolutely right. Yes. That's great. So uh, earlier you mentioned about the range of people that you should ask for these letter writers. So the the word diversification kind of came in mind. So besides the people that you're asking coming from other universities, for example, what about industrial collaborators? What about researchers from other countries? Are they required or are they recommended or are they not so useful in this process? That's a good question. For the industry, I think unless, this is my opinion, unless the person who is writing the letter from industry has experience being in academia, so that way they can talk about what the experience is and how they know your contribution helps the academy. But if the person has just been in industry the whole time, I think there might be some bias in terms of the reviewer, the committee thinking they don't really understand how it works in the academy. They've been at so-and-so lab for 35 years. So that could be there, but I've seen cases where that letter writer from industry was a prominent faculty member at a university or a former dean or something like that, where they know about what the potential of the candidate is and how to write the letter. The second thing you said was the international piece. Because the academy is so different from country to country, I think the letter is way more if the faculty member who is international was a faculty member in the U.S., right? And they can speak to this. So that's my opinion. I've seen it where it could tank, where it's like, ah, this is not as strong as the letter as it could have been. He or she didn't address how this pertains to being a faculty member at Berkeley or at, you know. So the letter writer really has to know that key point so that it could be evaluated. It can weigh heavily into the decision-making process and not seen as uh, they don't really know what it's like. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion. Yeah, that's a great point. My experience, I remember people had told me that when you go up for tenure, you shouldn't get letters from your advisors 
you know, postdoc advisors or PhD advisors because they could be biased or, you know, it's a direct conflict of interest, but your collaborators can write these letters. So I'm not really sure where the boundaries are. I'm guessing that's also depending on the institution requirements, but the advisors are definitely a big no-no. Is that right? Yeah, I would say so. I would personally stay away from the graduate, the PhD advisor, and probably the postdoc advisor. Unless while I was a postdoc with that advisor had a patent or made some very significant accomplishment that was completely an individual situation, Mm -hmm. then I think it's worth it because then I did make that discovery in his or her lab. And Mm -hmm. so I think it would be important for that postdoc to say, yes, you know, Kim did this in my lab, totally independent from what we were doing. This is what she, so it could work. But I think if it doesn't have that heavy hitter type situation, I probably would just stay away from it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one major difference comparing to the The junior faculty initial search, it's almost the opposite. Here, by the time you go for tenure and promotion, they're looking for independence. Mm -hmm. So that's why you want to be kind of steer away from your old connections because you want to show that you are now your own. Uh, You have your own collaborators. What if your department chair or the search committee asked these letter writers to write you this letter for your package and they don't respond? Then what happens? Are they getting replaced at some point? You know, for this one, you really need a strong chair of the committee to really navigate that situation. The committees that I've served on, including the ones that I was the chair, I was really, really, really strict about that. I would make it very clear to the committee. We're sending out the announcements to ask for these letters. If we don't hear anything by this, we're going to follow up with a phone call to make sure it didn't get lost in email. You know, it might be a busy time, blah, blah, blah. Because if you get a no if you call and they say, no, I cannot write this letter, you have to do your due diligence and record that. You have to say, Professor X said no. You have to replace them. You have to record that. For me, that's my own philosophy because you don't want to tamper with, this is a very, 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 very important process for the junior faculty member. And so it's very important to document when these things happen. So the reason why a strong chair is needed is because you don't want that to happen. So you try to make sure that everybody you're going to contact is going to say yes. (laughs) There were times where I was like, I think this person might say no. (laughs) So I'm not, we're not calling that person. You have to just be really rigid. And if your gut is saying you have to pick 10 people out of 15, you make sure you pick the 10 people that's going to respond, that is going to tell you yes. You don't want to set your junior candidate up for you to have to record that somebody said no or they didn't respond and therefore you had to replace it. So if they don't respond, for me, I write it down. I have to record it. 
I don't want to tamper with the process. And most of the bylaws for the departments will state what you need to do if somebody doesn't respond, what kind of timeline you have, can you? So sometimes it's just better off just looking at your faculty, your department bylaws. And sometimes those things are spelled out. So that's usually my default. Go to the faculty handbook. If faculty handbook doesn't state what to do, then go to my department bylaws. Yeah, those are tricky things, right? <laughs> because the names that you provide is a portion, maybe half or maybe a portion of the total number that they're going to select from. Some you have some control. So you give 10 names and they're all, you know that they're going to respond. But the other 10 that goes into the pool, you have no control because your search committee selected them. And then if they don't respond, it just doesn't look good no matter what. So I think, yeah, you're right. I think you really need some champion to really kind of be there and watch out for everything that comes through <laughs> to make sure this package is complete. I recently ran into this problem with some search committee asked me to write this external letter for this faculty. And then in the small print with this request, it said that the applicant has the right to read this reference letter that I was asked to provide. That made me hesitate. I don't know how many times you have been asked to to do stuff like that or run into the case where the potential, this applicant can see everything that you write. It used to be very close so you can keep your letter very honest. But with the fact that they could read it at some point made me somewhat reserved because I felt like the candidate was not so strong. If he or she would not see the letter, I would write a very honest letter. But as a result, I ended up saying, no, I would not be able to provide a letter. So I don't know, how would you deal with that situation? And how often have you seen that happening? Yeah, so a similar situation happened to me where I was asked to provide an external letter. And instead of saying no, because I've served on so many committees and I know what that implies when they say no, and I'm like, if this chair is anything like me, they're going to write this down and then, uh, right, you come crazy and I won't be able to sleep at night. So what I did was I called the chair. I asked the chair in writing because, you know, everything had to be documented. I say, hey, I have some questions because I don't think I'm close enough to this applicant's field. And so they called me back right away. I said, hey, I'm in condensed metaphysics. This is what I do. And I'm into this area. You're asking me to evaluate this area. And then I did a long pregnant pause, right? And they said, oh, okay, got it. Okay, got it. You know, sorry, Dr. Lewis, from some of the things we saw on your website, we might've overlooked that detail. Nice. And so I was like, great. <laughs> I didn't say great, of course. I say, okay, thank you. I'm glad that we cleared that up. I don't know how the chair handled it, but for me, that was the most honest feedback I could give. So That's I was right. able to navigate the situation in that way. Right, right. And it will not impose any negative thing toward the applicant self. That's perfect. <laughs> 
we had all written many letters for other people, but I think Kim, you probably written the most because oftentimes you also have to work on the cases coming up in your own, like all the cases that are coming up in your school. So, what are the things that you think letter writers should be aware of? A great question. I think the letter writers should take this job very, very seriously, and they should not say yes haphazardly and. They really should put aside a, a time block to really write this letter thoroughly and spend time e really evaluating it because it's a very, very serious process. And they may have forgotten how stressful it is for a junior faculty to wait for these decisions. But the key things are, I think they should definitely keep it positive, make very strong cases for the applicant. I think they should make sure they say who they are. So if I'm writing a letter, I say, hey, I'm a professor of physics. I also serve as an associate dean of research. Here's my pedigree. Graduated from the University of Michigan. I have a master's degree in electrical engineering. Basically, you want to say I'm qualified to evaluate this candidate. The other thing is they want to be aware of unconscious gender bias. They want to make sure they're not using words to describe a male or female candidate in a demeaning manner. So, for example, they might say things like, oh, she's very nice, or she's always happy, or oh, he's so caring. So you want to avoid those type of adjectives, and you just want to stick to the scholarship. She has strong research. Her contributions did this. So you just want to very clearly state facts. And sometimes it's very hard. We're all human. So, you know, when I think of Panya, I'm like, she has a great smile, right? But I'm like, I'm writing a letter of recommendation. I, there's, this has nothing to do with. And so I have to go back even myself to clean my letter and scrub it of all of those terms that have nothing to do with the scholarship of the person. Another thing, they should be very specific in their recommendations. They want to make sure they talk about the person's work ethics, their skill set, how they resolve problems, how were they with the undergraduates, graduates in the lab, whether they could see that person as a chair of their department or as a full professor in their department. So it's really a strictly a peer evaluation. Definitely keep the job description in mind. I've seen letters where they're writing as if the school is a teaching university. Sometimes the letter writers are just trying to get it out the way, which is why I say the first thing is the letter writer has to take this seriously and they have to make sure that they know the school that the candidate is applying to. So if it's a teaching school, they know what to focus on. If it's a research one, it's research two, they know what to focus on. So I think that's very important. And especially if the job description is saying, we're looking for an experimental condensed matter physicist, then they want to make sure blah, blah, blah. And they sometimes they'll say, we're looking for experimental condensed matter physics, physicists who can do X. So then in the letter, you want to bring out the X, <laughs> so to speak. And I think those are the important things for me that I've seen that are important. Lucy, you probably have things to add or Panya, you might have things to add in terms of what the letter writers should be mindful of. Yeah, I think you covered all the points. I just wanted to say that if you are going to write a letter, be a good one. <laughs> Otherwise... Don't write one at all. I mean, that's probably 
more important for the entry level job, but still. For tenure promotions, these are very significant, critical piece, and all these letters are read word for word. In my personal experience, so they could impact one's career. So, I would say really take the time. Don't just change a name of some writing from another person's letter, and it's just that's kind of irresponsible. And can I say one of the things? I think it's also you know when you're asking for letters, like the names that you do select. I think it's important that you do spend time with that person. So if it's at a conference, and you want that person to get to know who you are, not only your scholarship and your research, but what your philosophy is on other things like teaching and service. You want the committee to know you will be a good citizen of the department. Right. And that this person is not just going to go in their lab, close the door and get a Nobel Prize. What you want them to do, but you want to know that they're going to leave their office. They're going to come to department meetings. They have a teaching philosophy. They will fight for students who need to be at the, you know, you want to know that person is going to be a whole citizen of the department. And I think that for me is one part that I often find that the letters are lacking. I want them to be able to come and serve as an undergraduate recruitment chair. I just don't want them to be the brilliant research scientist, right? Because they also have another component of their job, which is to service the students. If I could wish anything about changing a little bit of the letter writing is to add that component of a full citizenship in the department, not just the scholarship research and publications and how much money they will bring in. Today, we've talked about writing reference letters for an academic job applicant and for someone going up for tenure or promotion. From both the letter writers and letter readers' perspectives, we hope our conversations today can help you find your next star letter writers so you can succeed in getting to wherever you want to be. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. This episode is sponsored by Dig Writer and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, DeGreiter's 2022 catalog is now available on This Academic Life website. Find us at thisacademiclife.org or follow us on Facebook. You can listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. If you're interested in sponsorship, please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.